Let's turn our Bibles this morning to the book of John, the Gospel of John. And we'll be reading and looking at verses 1 through 18, not to 29, for very good reasons. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and when he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must first rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Bible commentator Manfred Gutzke insightfully notes regarding Christ's resurrection from the dead, quote, The risen Christ did not walk into the presence of Pilate, nor did he confront the high priest or even 
a group of Roman soldiers who pounded the nails into his hands and feet, or the soldiers who had pierced his side with a spear. Such action would have been dramatic and might suggest some, to some a graphic way to emphasize the gospel. Jesus revealed himself only to believers, end quote. You see, the fact was both the political and religious establishment had decisively and conclusively rejected him, rejected his message, rejected his ministry. And judging by their efforts to suppress even the slightest evidence that Christ was risen from the dead, it is almost certain that they would have attempted to kill him once again. And so Jesus did not appear to them following his resurrection for all intents and purpose. He was through with them. And the sad thing is that the next time they will see him will be in judgment. So based on the records of the gospel writers and that of the apostle Paul, Jesus, as far as we know, appeared only to his people, only to those who followed him, only to believers in him. And what is most striking is that in all these appearances, in all his appearances to them, he finds them both low in faith and low in spirit. Read the accounts and you'll see that they are very low in faith and they are very low in spirit. In every instance of his appearing to them, he leaves them how? Lifted, strengthened, and encouraged in their faith. My friends, I want you to know this morning that in every dark situation in which a risen Christ enters, he makes an enormous difference for good. Where he finds those who are sad of heart, he leaves them consoled and uplifted. Where he finds those who are worried and fearful, he leaves them worshiping. He leaves them in a spirit of renewed faith and confidence in him. And I would say that amidst the panic and distress of our time, we can rest assured knowing that his presence in our lives will inspire assurance, hope, and courage to face the future. I'm not just saying that because that can be said. I'm saying that because it is a fact those of us who have placed faith and trust in him know precisely what we're talking about. And In our text this morning, we see that the risen Christ brings renewed faith and hope to the disillusioned and distressed. And that is the subject this morning. The risen Christ brings renewed faith and hope to the disillusioned and distressed. The events of the resurrection are recorded here in John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18. And the first to show up that morning on the 
morning that Christ was raised from the dead was Mary Magdalene. And what a woman of courage this woman, Mary Magdalene, was because we see there in verse 1 that she came to the tomb early, the Bible says, while it was dark. Not even the 11 disciples dared do that. Not even Peter, as impetuous as he was, did that. And the question is, what led Mary to come so early? What led this woman, Mary Magdalene, to visit the tomb of Jesus so early in the morning while it was still dark? No doubt she came early out of sheer love for the Lord Jesus. Because you see, according to Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, it was this woman, Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Jesus had brought her peace, he had brought her freedom from the stranglehold of Satan. And so considering how much Jesus had done for her, Mary, out of gratitude, out of love for the Lord Jesus, out of her appreciation for his marvelous grace upon her life, she was led to the tomb so early. That certainly, we could say, was one reason. She did that out of sheer love. But based on Mark chapter 16 and verse 1, we learned that she and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had intended to anoint, that is, to embalm the body of Jesus. You see, when Jesus had just died, remember Nicodemus took the body, he wrapped it, and because of the Passover, of course, they could not carry on any embalming of the body during Passover. So Mary, of course, it's going to take a long time to do that, so Mary came early in the morning to assist the others who would be engaged in the embalming process. Now, noticing the stone that had been taken away from the tomb, the Bible tells us she ran to Peter and John to report the matter. She ran, and no doubt she ran with great uh, speed, with great haste. She was all flustered. We, we might imagine not finding the body of Jesus. She went, complaining as it were, we have not found the body of Jesus. And having come to the tomb, Peter and John, we are told, saw the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, but the face cloth was not with the rest of the cloth. The face cloth was by itself, and the rest of the cloth, the Bible tells us, was folded in another place, placed there neatly. Was Jesus sending a signal of the fact that he had risen from the dead. And although Jesus had carefully explained to his disciples that he would rise from the dead, in fact, different times he did that. For example, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, the disciples clearly did not take it to heart. Mary Magdalene must have heard that Jesus had made this promise that he would rise from the dead. Verse 9 of our text states, For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. 
You see, where there's ignorance of the word of God, where there's ignorance of the scriptures, fear, confusion, perplexity is bound to occur. You and I need not be flustered today. You and I need not be wondering whether Jesus rose from the dead. You and I need not be doubtful and skeptical because we have the record of the word of God. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. So what did these disciples do? If you notice in verse 10, they did what they had to do. Namely, they went back to their homes. They went back to their homes. They went back, no doubt, disappointed. They went back, no doubt, disheartened and dejected. No, Jesus. Jesus was not to be found. But in zeroing on Mary this morning, the question is, what of Mary? How did Mary take the evident, the seeming loss of the Lord Jesus? Well, she seemed to have been most impacted by the undesirable discovery that that morning, the body of Jesus was nowhere to be found. You see, that he had died was one thing. That was sad enough. But that his precious body was nowhere to be found, well, that really was disturbing. That, for her, was most heart-rending. And so against the backdrop of verse 10, which says that the disciples went back to their homes, we see in verse 11 something of the intensely painful depths of Mary's sorrow. In fact, just read verses 10 and 11 together. One of the things about chapter and verse divisions of the Bible is that very often it obscures, it has a way of obscuring the flow of the text so that we do not get the drift, the thrust of the text. Look at verses 10 and 11, read verse 10, read right into verse 11, you get, and you get the picture. John says there, verse 10, that the disciples went back to their homes, verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She had already looked into the tomb. Sorrow, she was so overwhelmed with sorrow, she went back to look again. Here we see that so consumed was Mary with sorrow, so consumed was she with distress, with her sense of loss, so sorrowful she was at not finding the Lord Jesus. She had absolutely no interest in going home. There are people this morning, there are people today who are afraid of going home. For Mary, home, the place that bespeaks comfort, could not in any way soothe her sorrow. The disciples had gone back home, but Mary stood outside. And what was she doing? She was weeping. She was bemoaning what she thought was her loss. But oh, little did she know that even as she was in the throes of distress, even as she was there in the depths of sorrow, little did she realize that all the while Jesus had been there with her. She was not alone. 
First verses 14 through 18 indicate right in the very midst of her heartache, of her grief, of her sorrow, Jesus was there with her. But before she became aware that Jesus was with her, verses 11 to 13 tell us that as she stooped, looking into the tomb, weeping, here's what the Bible says, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? In effect, they were saying to her, What? Woman, stop weeping. Why in the world are you weeping? Your weeping is needless. Your weeping is groundless. Listen, Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen from the dead. My friends, that is the reality. That is the message that should bring solace and comfort, especially to those who are, who are sorrowing, who are bereaving the loss of a loved one. No need is there for inconsolable weeping. No need is there for hopeless sorrow. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He's risen, he is risen indeed. Now, when in response to the query of the angels as to why she was weeping, and she responded how that they had taken away her Lord and that she did not know where they had laid him. It was then that she turned around, verse 14, and the Bible tells us there that she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus was there, but she did not realize that Jesus was there with her. I wonder why it was that she didn't know that it was Jesus. Was hers a case similar to that of Luke chapter 24, 16, where the eyes of the two with whom Jesus was conversing, the Bible tells us, were kept from recognizing him? In other words, was it that in the sovereign plan of God, was it in the providential ordering of God, somehow God, through divine activity, she was not able to recognize Jesus? Or was it that she failed to recognize Jesus because she was so overtaken by sorrow and distress? You see, tears of sorrow, tears of grief have a way of doing what? Blinding our eyes to the presence and activity of God in our lives. Tears of sorrow, inconsolable tears of sorrow, heartaches of a way of obscuring our vision so that we cannot detect, we cannot discern how much God is very much present with us, how much is very much active in our lives. You see, that seems to have been Mary's situation. And swallowed up by the pressures and problems of life, distressed by the crises, the troubles and trials of life, we fail to recognize that all along the Lord is with us. Maybe I'm speaking to someone this morning who 
Like Rachel refuses to be comforted. You are in the throes of distress. All you can see is the darkness. All you can see is the crisis. All you can see and sense is that God is nowhere present. Let me say this to you, that in those times when you think he's not there, you can bet on this, that he is very much there. Why? Because he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, Mary was so thoroughly convinced. In her mind, she was so thoroughly convinced that not only had Jesus died, but they had stolen his body. And that drove her to such depths of sorrow, such depths of distress, that she did not recognize him when he appeared to her. And if you notice further in the text, even when Jesus began speaking to her, even at the moment Jesus began speaking to her, inquiring of her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She still did not recognize him. She still didn't realize it was Jesus. Verse 15 says this. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and, laid him and I will take him away. Now it's curious that Mary thought he was the gardener. It's curious when we recall that the first Adam, going back to the Garden of Eden, the first Adam was what? A gardener. And indeed, our Lord Jesus is a gardener of sorts. He is a gardener. He's truly a gardener. How do we know that? Because the church of which he is the head is likened in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, as God's field, it is characterized as God's field, as God's husbandry, as his cultivated land. But I want to submit to you this morning, not only is he a gardener, but he is God Almighty. He is God incarnate. He, my friends, is the risen divine Lord of heaven and earth. And he, the great gardener, the great God of heaven, will one day have a tremendous harvest. And we know what that harvest is about because the word of God tells us that he is going to harvest his fields, separating the wheat from the chaff. As Luke 3.17 so bring the warns, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear its threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The question is, on what side of the harvest will you be on that day when the great gardener, the great God of heaven, the Lord Jesus, returns? Will you be among the saved or the lost? Will you be among the chaff or the wheat? My friends, you are either on one side or the other. Neutral, you cannot and will not be. It's either on the side of Christ or on the side of Satan and destruction. Well, back to, back to our text. After Mary had aired her distress at not finding her Lord, we then read in verse 16... 
Jesus said to her, and I like this, Jesus said to her, Mary. One word. In addressing her, notice he did not, as he did in verse 15, address her as woman. What he did, still with one word, he says, he just simply said, Mary. I, I try to imagine how he must have said, Mary. And put yourself in that situation. You know, sometimes you haven't seen somebody for a long time. You can hardly recognize them. And they say, you don't know who I am? Imagine Jesus saying to her, first of all, by way of gentle rebuke, Mary. Is that the way he said, you don't know who I am? He might, he might have used tones of soothing consolation. Mary. It might have been with tones of cheer, of joy. Mary. Regardless of how he said it, here's the point. The moment he called her by name, she recognized how personally and individually the Lord ministers comfort and solace to those who are hurting, to those who are grieving. A lot of things are happening in our world, even as I speak to you this morning. A lot of crazy, frightening things, interesting things too. But in a world where more and more we as humans are being objectified and some would have us replaced with AIs. We're talking about the age. They say we are, we're in the age and we're fast approaching the age of what is known as transhumanism. We hear about chat GPT. We hear more and more of systematic attempts, at least so it seems, to kind of replace human beings with artificial intelligence. And my friends, how wonderful, how assuring it is to know that the Lord regards us as persons. He regards us as persons. And he knows and cares for us, not digitally, not numerically, but he knows and cares for us personally. He comes to Mary in her distress and he simply says to her, and this is how she's going to recognize that it was indeed the risen Lord. He called her and by the very calling of her name, she instantly recognized this is none other than my Lord. Well, what happened after her discovery that it was in fact Jesus? was talking to her. The fact that Jesus was indeed alive. She turned, she said to him, look at the text, Rabbani. That's an Aramaic word for teacher, as John tells us, and you see, for sure she was, we, we have no doubt about this, she must have been what? Elated, excited. She was so glad, she was all excited to see the risen Christ, to see Jesus, here's what she began doing. She began holding on to him. She began clinging to him. We'd say she was hugging him. And the 
point is she would not let him go. She was excited. I have found my Lord. Here is my Lord. I've been looking for you. I've been sorrowing for you. I've been grieving. Here now is my Lord. And she would not let him go. She would not let him go. She was so excited. She was so thrilled at the thought of finding her Lord who was once dead but is now alive. And then with what must have been a mild, gentle rebuke, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. We, we don't get the force of what Jesus said um, so much in our English translation, but in the Greek text, the force of this negative command is as follows. Stop clinging to me. Um... Don't, don't keep holding me. Stop clinging to me. Stop, stop clinging to me. And it's interesting that whereas in Matthew 28 verse 9, women took hold of his feet, worshipped him without his objecting, here in John 20 and verse 17, he tells Mary to stop clinging to him. Why? Because he had not yet ascended to his father. It's not that he wanted to make her feel bad. It was not that he wanted to insult her. He says to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Now, we can't be very sure as to the whole um, thrust of what he said here, other than what he said. But the reason he gave her suggests that he is signaling to her the fact that the days of relating to him Fellowshipping with him by natural senses, the natural senses, seeing him, hearing him, touching him, those days basically are near over. That he's about to enter into his exalted, glorified state. And what this sort of reminds us is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, where he writes, Though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Yes, while with Job we can confidently affirm that we shall someday, we shall in the end see him with our eyes whom we shall behold and not another, Job 19:25 through 27. And while we can hold with conviction what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 2 that we shall see him as he is, the point is, on this side eternity, on this side heaven, the way we relate to him is not by sound, is not by sight, is not by touch, but how? By faith. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, verse 7. As Jesus would later say to Thomas in verse 29 of our text, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed it seems we could say that what Jesus was attempting to get across to Mary was, look, my earthly ministry is near over and you're not going to be able to relate to me this way. Upon my ascension to my Father, I'm going to be glorified, I'm going to be exalted. It's interesting that when the Apostle John later on saw the risen Christ, even though he used to lean on Jesus' bosom, remember when he saw him, what happened? He fell before him as one 
dead. He was overcome by the majesty, by the glory of the Lord Jesus. Well, getting back to Jesus' dialogue as we seek to wind down his dialogue with Mary, then instructed her. Very interesting, verse 17. He says, stop clinging to me because I go to my father, to your father, to my God, your God. Did you get the pronouns? You see the emphasis of the pronouns, my, your, He says, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. What's a glorious lesson here for us? It is this, that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, reassures, it underscores for us the gracious, blessed privilege you and I have as believers in him of recognizing and of calling the high, holy God of heaven, our Father and our God. What a blessing. The resurrection of Christ we learn here unites us with Christ. It brings us into living vital union with Christ, thereby confirming our membership in the family of God. You remember in our Good Friday service this past Friday, those who were in attendance, We saw that among the wonderful benefits of Christ's suffering and death, one of the marvelous benefits, Peter tells us, is this. He suffered the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. And here we see in our text today that it is the resurrection of Christ that ratifies our belonging to God as his sons and daughters. I'm ascending to my Father, your Father, my God, your God. What marvelous grace. What condescending grace. Here it was, Jesus is saying, as it were, you and I, my disciples, all of my followers, we are united together and we can call God our Father. What grace. Now, getting back to the dialogue, verse 17. Don't touch me. Stop clinging to me. But I have some work for you to do. He says, verse 17, but go to my brothers. To whom was he referring? He was referring to whom? His his 11 disciples. His 11 fearful disciples who were locked away in a room. Remember those 11 disciples? Remember this trial? One disowned him. All of them fled from him when he needed them most. How might you and I have reacted with bitterness? But here is our Lord Jesus and we see the grace, the compassion, the forgiveness there is in the risen Christ. He says to Mary, but go to my brother's. He says, and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your your father and to my God and your God. What grace. What marvelous grace. We then read in verse 18, Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. I have a word this morning for all, and it's a good word, it's not an attacking word, it's an encouraging word. But I have a word from Scripture for all the feminists and so-called progressive theologians. And I want to say that contrary to what you might think or might have been led to believe, the Bible is not misogynistic. The Bible is not averse to women. The Bible does not denigrate women. The Bible does not, or rather is not in any way prejudiced against women. If there was one individual who honored women, who exalted women, who dignified women, it was who? The Lord Jesus. For example, against the cultural practice in his day of men not speaking to women in public. His disciples in John 4, 27 marveled that he was talking to a woman. And mark you, who was this woman? She was a woman of shady repute. She was a woman who evidently people despised because you notice the time of the day she was going to catch water. Which tells us she did not want to come in contact with people who scorned her. But here was Jesus. Jesus was talking to this woman. His disciples came. They marveled that he was doing that. And what our Lord Jesus was doing there, my friend, he was thereby showing how much he cared for those who were regarded as the scum of the earth. He honored women. Unlike the rabbis of his day who would never think of having women sit under their teaching, you didn't have rabbis with women following them, sitting at their feet. Jesus broke that taboo. Because he had, we are told in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, Mary sitting at his feet, learning as he taught the word of God. In fact, in Jewish tradition, and that I suppose this is where many get carried away and think the Bible is misogynistic. We have to make a difference between what the Bible describes and what the Bible prescribes. Right? What, in fact, in, in, in those days, there was a tradition among the Jewish men that says the women must have nothing to do with Torah. Torah was just for the men. Jesus breaks that taboo. He has Mary sitting at her feet, at his feet, taking in the word of God. Remember the woman who she turned up at this dinner where Jesus had been invited to in, in the house of, of, of the Pharisee? And while she came up behind Jesus, she was wiping his feet with her hair. She was there attending to him. This Pharisee, he, he, he thought to himself, if this man knew who this woman was, if he was a prophet, he wouldn't be allowing her to touch him. And Jesus, what did Jesus do? For sure he was a prophet. What did Jesus do? Jesus really spoke up about the good this woman was doing. He said, in fact, he rebuked Simon. He said, Simon, from the time I entered here, you gave me no kiss. You did not give me, you did not anoint my head. But from the moment I came in, this woman has been ministering to me. Now, as John 20 verse 1 indicates, it was this Mary Magdalene whom we have been discussing this morning. 
who was the first to show up at the tomb. Not the disciples. And what do you know? Christ's appearance was not first to the disciples, but to her, Mary, a woman. On top of that, on top of that, notice verse 19, he commissioned Mary, he gave Mary a commission. And what was that commission? To go bear the news to his disciples of his resurrection and of his prospective ascension to heaven. Wow, what elevation. What exaltation, what honor. You see, what we have here in the Gospels flies in the face. It's a big scandal to what many in those days, what the culture dictated. A woman was of no account. Here it was, women were at the forefront of Jesus' resurrection. The morning, a woman showed up first, Jesus. The first bearer of the good news was a woman. What elevation. And let me clarify to say this. You see, while the New Testament clearly, and this we will say with dogmatism because this is what the Bible teaches, while the New Testament clearly, clearly, categorically prohibits women from teaching the word of God in public, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And by the way, we cannot read that passage and say, well, Paul was talking out of the cultural norms of the day because how do we know we can't use that argument? Because Paul appeals not to culture. He appeals to the creation mandate. He says, for Adam was created first. And he says, on top of that, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And, he, and Paul says there, I will not permit a woman to teach. Go back earlier in, the, in that same chapter, First Timothy chapter 2, who are the people who are to lead in public prayer? Notice what Paul says, I want for the men. And he did not use the root word anthropos, which is a generic term for humankind. He specifically used the root word andros for man. And he uses a definite article. He says there, I want the men, that is the males, to pray. Women are to pray, but not in the sense of leading public worship. And by a similar token, the Bible forbids women from teaching the word of God in public. But listen, this in no way is designed to put women down. This, in fact, is part and parcel of God's plan, his sovereign plan, his sovereign purpose. He does it for the sake of order. He does it along the lines of the creation order. And it's important to note in closing that while women are forbidden from teaching and preaching the word of God in public, this does not mean there can't be witnesses for the Lord. Mary Magdalene is clear testimony to that. Christ instructed her. Here was the instruction to her. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And listen, Mary was faithful to that command. She was faithful. And hence, she was the first bearer of the good news that Christ had risen from the dead. The overarching message this morning, beloved, is this, that Christ makes a difference. In whatever dark situation 
There might be the risen Christ brings hope to the distressed, hope and comfort and cheer to the disillusioned. But I want to say this to you in closing. Beyond that, Christ is not interested first and foremost in that. He is interested first and foremost in saving men from sin, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. And the word of God teaches us why he died. He was delivered over for offenses. Romans chapter 4 verse 25. And he was raised again for our justification. My question to you this morning is, do you know him as your savior? Have you called upon him? Have you trusted him? Someday or another, you're going to need him. And the Bible assures us in Acts chapter 17 that there is coming a day of judgment. And how do we know there is coming a day of judgment? Because Paul tells us there in his sermon, he says, God has given witness to this very fact of coming judgment by the fact that he has raised Jesus from the dead. He's coming again. He's coming not as the suffering lamb, but he's coming back as the conquering, triumphant lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming back, not in weakness. He's coming back in power and great glory. He's coming back in grace for his people, but he's coming back in wrath and judgment for those who are not saved, those who have never trusted him. Come to him today, trust him, whom to know is life eternal.